Joining us now from uh, Columbia, Maryland, is Doug Greenwald. Doug is a senior teaching fellow and executive director at Preserving Bible Times. It's a ministry that's been around for 15, 16, 17 years, something like that, and uh, really teaches the context behind Scripture, which helps us see it in full dimension. And we're so pleased to have him with us every Wednesday morning. Doug somehow carves time out of a very busy schedule and, and talks to us. Doug, you... You had a mega thought last year. I remember we were talking off the air about your mega thought this year. Last year it was, it was seeing yourself as a, a slave of Christ. Uh, emphasis on the word slave, which, by the way, does not appear in the King James Version for some political reasons. But um, you explained to us then that the idea of of a slave was much different in the, in the Roman Empire than it was here on this side of the pond uh, the, before the Civil War. Uh, you've got another mega idea. I can see your your temple's throbbing there, so uh, l- l- let her rip. <laughs> well, you know, these are probably not mega thoughts or mega mm-hmm. ideas, but they're just big enough to fill up my small mind, you know, well, so everything's okay. sort of relative. All right. um, actually, one and a half mega thoughts. Let me start with a short one first. After 17 years of having the motto for preserving Bible times as context always matters. Mm-hmm. Or as we picked it up for the Institute of Biblical Context logo, because context always matters, mm-hmm. it just came to crashing in on me. That doesn't say anything about why context matters and why one should even care about why context matters. And so I've been toying around with a new motto, slogan, if you will, that tries to tie together what we do with why we do it. And the working phrase right now, which is still going to need a little more work, but at least starting to point in the right direction, is bringing the Bible alive so God's people can thrive. Mm -hmm. See, it it deals with mm -hmm. impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why does context matter? Because it gets us to original meaning, and we get to original meaning. That's where transformation is to be found, and that's where impact is to be found, mm-hmm. and that's when people start to thrive. So compressing all those thoughts, why does context matter? Because it brings the Bible alive so God's people can thrive. Mm-hmm. That's my small mega thought for going into this okay. new year. You know, from in, a, in the ad business, we call that a positioning statement. It's supposed to be yeah, short, okay. short, easily memorized, and it distinguishes you from your competition. But your competition is of a different nature than commercial competition. There, I don't know how many other people are doing what you do. My but, competition is apathy. Yeah. My competition is ignorance. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a quote I ran across several years. You know, the thing about ignorance is it picks up confidence as it goes along. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, about, how about get off your dust? Well, David's smiling so robustly. Well, he, know, he knows all about ignorance. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah. That was just... <laughs> Yeah, it, uh, the ignorance gets more confident all the time. <laughs> you're, you're, the slogan could be something like, get off your duff and read this stuff. Yeah, that could no, be a southern thing. version no, of yeah, it, maybe be. an Appalachian version of yeah, it. Okay. Well, just a thought. But yeah, that's, uh, that's a thought that's uh, going around my mind. I've, I've been saying what we do, but I've never said why we do it, and mm-hmm. i got to sort of fix that somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, back to... Um, a much bigger megathought. As you know, we have been focused on frameworks for quite some time. It's one thing to realize 
that there's context out there that matters when it comes to the scripture. It's quite another thing to organize it in such a way that it begins to reveal the original meaning of the passage, which is the whole point of what we do. And so um, we've developed certain methodologies and, and a process by which we go about that. And we have five questions we ask before we jump into the text. We have five questions we ask once we've gotten through the text and have seen the original meaning. We have a sort of a um, trifocal glasses framework here where we want to think on three levels at the same time. Ground level, 5,000 feet. What is the uh, book all about that we're in? What are the themes that the writer is developing? And then the 30,000 foot perspective. What are the five storylines of scripture? What does this tell us about God, the human condition, mutiny, God's plan of rescue and restoration, that, those kinds of things. But I recently have been exposed to the thought that the ancient rabbis in the first century had a methodology as well, had a process, if you will, whereby they were trying to discern the original meaning of a passage. And I have found their way of looking at scripture fascinating. For starters, they have a completely different pair of glasses than we have. They see themselves, I'm talking about the ancient rabbis now in the first century, as in a marriage relationship with Yahweh. And from the Jewish worldview perspective, every marriage relationship has a contract. It's called a ketubah. Mary and Joseph in Luke 2 would have had a ketubah. It itemizes the obligations, the legal obligations of the two parties in the marriage. Now, when we deal with Judaism, particularly in terms of the Bible setting, Jews are behavioral people. They are not philosophical people. We in the West, we are philosophical people. So we use terms like God is transcendent and he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. Those are all philosophical, conceptual words and terms. Jews don't think that way. They think in terms of behavior. For them, God is what God does, okay? And in the marriage relationship that they ha have with Yahweh, God has pledged to do certain things, and they have pledged to do certain things. And from their worldview, it's a legal relationship. It's a contract. Now, we use the word covenant, you know, more in our world to sort of capture some of that. The problem here starts with whenever we use the word legal, people in Western evangelicalism just genuflex and say, oh, legalism, no, we can't have it we got to get that notion out of the way. The word legal can be a very positive um, meaning as well. So for starters, when we get through understanding from our Western worldview, from the practice and process and methodologies we're using to determine the original meaning of the passage, we got a couple more questions we need to ask. One is, what does this passage say about our marriage vows, our marriage contract with God himself? Okay? That's not a way we're accustomed to thinking. 
Another perspective here is that whenever a rabbi would deal with some piece of the Old Testament, what they call the Tanakh, their first question is, what does this passage say about our legal relationship with God? In other words, what obligations do we have in this marriage relationship? And they want to be very, very clear on what that is, because then that's what they want to wrestle with. Now, we've often talked in, in even our encounters through the years about we need to learn to wrestle with the text, but we've never really explained the word wrestling. And the, the, the problem with that is, to Western ears, when you use the word wrestle, you think of uh, WWF or these things you see on TV where two people, two men typically, are, are fighting with each other and, and there's a winner and there's a loser. Okay? That's not what wrestling is biblically. That's not what wrestling means to a first century Jew. They think back to Jacob when he wrestled. And the reason he clung and he held so tightly in that wrestling match is he wanted the blessing. The reason we wrestle with our commitment, with what the marriage contract says is our obligation, we want to cling to that, we want to hold firm to that, is because that can bless us. I have a question. Didn't Jesus make that marriage view obsolete? with his news of the new kingdom? No, I would go to John 14 too, for starters. Mm -hmm. And he uses the marriage relationship to define where he's going next and the fact that he's going to return and consummate the marriage. But that language presumes the ketubah, the marriage document, is already in place. Jesus often clarifies, he often expands upon, but seldom does he obsolete not one jot and tittle, if you remember mm -hmm. some of what he said. Mm -hmm. So this is, I find, absolutely fascinating that we, we go through this process of using context and contextual restoration to get to original meaning, and we ask the ground-level question, what does this all mean? We, we ask that question within the context of what's going on at 5,000 feet, the themes and storylines that the particular author is using as he creates his narrative in a, a passage, in a, in a book. And then we ask what's going on at 30,000 feet, the five storylines of scripture. Then we got to go up to 100,000 feet mm -hmm. and ask, what does this say about our obligations in the marriage vow we have with God, and are we prepared to wrestle with that, to cling to that, so that that can bless us? You know, that marriage allegory has been fundamental to my whole belief system for years, and a lot of it goes back to, to your original teaching with us years ago. Um, it, it's clear in, in, uh, in Genesis that God pursues a a wedding relationship, a loving, lifelong commitment from each of us individually, and in that he's made provision for us to, to, to go away and come back of our own accord so that it's real love, so that we're not automatons, that we're not, not just uh, 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 pretending. I mean, w w we have to know what it's like to be without God, to appreciate having him, and then by our own volition come back and say, yes, that loving relationship is something that's essential to my being. 
and uh, and and the marriage allegories through the through the cup and the wine, and the bridegroom and the and the and the, the the bridesmaids leaving the the lanterns lit. All those things speak to this marriage relationship as being fundamental. It seems like that's the heart message of of the Bible. And Jesus is the groom, and the church is 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 the bride. Um, so that holds true. But I'm just wondering if the way rabbis explained their scripture, which would have been Old Testament for them in, in those days, was the same approach that we need for Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. Well, here's another interesting perspective. If from a Jewish perspective, the Old Testament, what's known as the Tanakh, it defines the marriage relationship that the Jewish people have with Yahweh, their God. The way a Jew would then look at the New Testament would be as if it was the Mishnah, what the wisdom of the sages and the great rabbis have said about that marriage relationship. Mm -hmm. And then they would look at Acts through Revelation as what the Jews known as Midrash, the commentary on the, what the great rabbis have said about the Old Testament passages. So that's an interesting way for us to think, too, in Western evangelicalism. If we're dealing with an Old Testament passage, what does that say about our marriage relationship uh, with God in the New Covenant? And by the way, the new does not imply that something has been uh, obsoleted and needs to be thrown away. It's more the new expanded fulfilled version of what was. And therefore, it's a, a very positive thing to look at what are now my obligations, and that's a positive word, not a negative word, because I'm in love with God. I want to do these things. I just want to be clear on what it is I'm supposed to do, so I make sure I keep doing them because I want the blessing that comes from that relationship. It's just, I hope I'm communicating clearly here. I've only been working with this notion for about seven days, and I don't have a, a clear way to express it. But it is, it is a paradigmal shift in how we evangelicals can get more miles per gallon of impact, of transformation out of our Bible studies and out of the teachings that we do. Am I hearing that you need, you need to communicate what our obligation is in the relationship? Yeah, but we have to get rid of the negative context to the word obligation, mm -hmm. as if we're getting stuck in legalism, which, of course, is just abhorrent thought in Western evangelicalism. But this is my marriage partner. This is the person I love. Of course I want to do these things to mm -hmm. please him, mm -hmm. God himself. I can see that. Yeah. We, we want to be clear about that. Not because it's obligatory. It's because we pursue and want and desire the blessing that comes out of that, let's call it obedience. Mm -hmm. So lots of work to be done to clarify these thoughts so that they communicate clearly. And, uh, but that's some of the rough framework that's starting to trickle around in my mind here to realize that to view a passage from what are the obligations in the marriage contract that we have with God himself, 
that we want to embrace so that we secure and hold firmly to the blessing that comes with that obligation. You know, I think of the common terms in, in at least in previous years, the old wedding vows, to love, honor, and obey. You bring up the word obedience, and that brings me back to uh, the, the, the bugaboo for us as Westerners in particular. That's the idea of submission. We're just, that just kind of rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it does. But that's the essential attribute of a disciple in the first century. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, that's the context that comes with the word. The first thing a disciple wants to do when a rabbi says, follow me, which means come and be with me and submit to my authoritative teaching. In the Western evangelical world here, we've disconnected thought A from thought B in the phrase, follow me. We really like the come and be with me part, but you can't get away from come and be with me and submit to my authoritative teaching. But here's the part we miss. A disciple, a brand new disciple who's heard that invitation from an esteemed rabbi, follow me, can't wait to submit. That's the first thing he wants to do. He craves that. He, it's like he brings his laptop to the rabbi and he hits the delete button and he wipes out the entire contents of the disciple's hard drive because whatever he thought before, whatever his value system was, is of no consequence. It means nothing. Wipe your hard drive completely clean and then go cable to cable with the hard drive of your rabbi and hit download. Because as a disciple, everything your rabbi thinks is what you want to think. Everything your rabbi values is what you want to value. That's the positive understanding of submission. It actually is a very freeing concept. Hmm. It is. We're speaking with Doug Greenwald, Senior Teaching Fellow and Executive Director at Preserving Bible Times. Their website, preservingbibletimes.org. You can link to it from the Broken Road page if you'd like. And when you get there, I suggest you sign up for his monthly newsletter, which sometimes is twice monthly or even three times monthly. He calls it Reflections, and it comes to you via email. There's no cost involved, but a whole lot of great ideas and a whole lot of uh, help in, in, in bringing the Bible to life for you. That's what uh, Preserving Bible Times does. And, Doug, as always, we're grateful for uh, for your time with us every Wednesday morning here. We'll look forward to next week. And, and hey, this is just the, what, 10th day of Christmas? Well, I guess so. Yeah, well, we, we, could, we can wrap up Advent if you want next week. Take a look at Actually, that. I'm on the road next week. Oh, so oh we'll miss you. Okay, that's right. Texas, eh? Yeah. Okay. Well, travel safely. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Bye-bye. Happy New Year, Doug. Happy New Year, Doug.